Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Barton Lynch is one right out of the box. A whole lot more than a world champion surfer, a soul surfer and an astute competitor, a rebel with the cause, a big mouth with the smarts to back it up, a leader, a big wave surfer and a big hearted humanitarian. Barton's been dubbed the thinking man surfer and it fits. Winner of 17 major surf championships in his 15 years on the world tour, the highlight winning the 1998 world title in dramatic circumstances in the final in big barrels at Pipeline on the north shore of Oahu in Hawaii. Barton helped blaze the trail of professional surfing and fought for surfers to have a rightful voice in their sport. He's been honoured with many accolades, ASP Service to the Sport Award, inducted in the Australian Surfing Hall of Fame in 1998, the Australian Sporting Hall of Fame in 2000, the Huntington Beach Surfing Walk of Fame in 2017, and many more. He had the incredible honour of commentating at the recent Tokyo Olympics, essentially introducing surfing as an Olympic sport to the world. He loves sharing his passion for the sport with others and bringing kids and families together through the process. He's doing this on a grand scale with the BL Blastoff initiative, which he created in 2006. Partnering with GoPro in 2021, the BL Blastoff has adapted to the travel restrictions and goes global in a new online video format. Barton is also a professional coach and mentor to some of the world's best surfers. He thrives on passing his knowledge and experience to anyone who wants to improve their skills and improve their performance in and out of the water. He's a champion for disabled sports people, and his charitable and philanthropic work is legendary. It takes plenty of guts to become a world champion in any sport, and it takes guts to speak your mind in this day and age as well. It's a real honour to welcome to the blank canvas, Barton Lynch. Good morning, Barton. Good morning, Lee. Thanks for having me, mate. My pleasure. You know, it's the 50th episode, so I'm very happy to have you on board for this one. And congratulations on that, mate. That's uh, that's quite a body of work that you've achieved. I went and had a look at the podcast and listened to a couple, and I was was impressed by your work, and you must be doing good things if you last 50. (laughs) That's right. Well, there's probably less distractions this year or more time for such a thing, let us say. So um, whether I can, you know, push on into the future, uh, only time will tell. Mate, I'd like to start on the Olympics. What an Mm. honour that must have been to be a commentator and I guess introduce surfing uh, as a competitive sport at the Olympics for the first time. Yeah, it was a massive responsibility, I suppose, first and foremost. Um, You understand the moment, you know, people have been talking about surfing possibly being in the Olympics for quite a long time now. And in my mind, I always said, well, I didn't think it in the early days you could imagine what it could do. But then surfing had evolved to a point where you were like, well, you know, in a way, I feel like they need us. We don't need them, you know, to a degree, because surfing has its It's established a world tour, professional sport, jobs and industry and all of those things that it takes to be, you know, facilitating and and supporting a community of people. And it was doing that 
And then when it when it was accepted, I watched the, the response for me. I was like, now nah, whatever. And then everybody was really excited. And then I saw the way the athletes responded. I went, wow, this really means a lot to people. And then I got a call from Channel 7 and they put my name forward to the Olympic Broadcasting Service, uh, OBS, and, and got a call from them and, you know, was touched and honoured. And, and But then I was like, oh, this is a big responsibility. We're going to share the culture of surfing because, sure, you're there as a sport, but that sport really, its foundations are a culture. And in the process of it becoming a culture or becoming wide and mainstream accepted, that culture is the thing that gets diluted. You know, when I, <laughs> I remember surfing and it wasn't something your parents were proud of when I was a kid. It was embarrassing, really, that you were a surfer. And, that, you know, there was always a, well, can you be a doctor or a lawyer or, or something that brings some credibility to the family? You know, there was always kind of that in, in society, it, it thought like that about surfing. And we were the no-hoper, beach bum, drug addict, blah, 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 stereotyped as such. But what we were was a counterculture. And we were surfers recognised that there was a better way to live. And putting on the suit and the tie and going to an office and being a slave for someone else's profit, that wasn't the way to live. And that going to the beach and creating these, these opportunities to live at the beach was a much better idea. And I embraced that really young. I was, I suppose, philosophically, culturally, I was engaged with surfing on all of those levels before I was going to be a competitor. And so for me, that was the important thing going to the Olympics was remembering the culture and trying to bring some respect for it and its place in things. They say 90 plus percent of the audience have never surfed and never seen it, surfing or know it. So you had to kind of thread that line between what you know, your, your core audience is going to think of, of the performance and then you know introduce it to people who have never seen it all in this same moment of history, really. So that wore kind of heavy on my shoulders, you know, in a sense. And I was thinking in my mind, I was like, I'm the man for the job. I knew I, was, I could do that job and I kind of felt like I was the man for the job in a sense, you know. And then you go there and you've got all of the quarantining and COVID restrictions and all of that influence over the games. And, you know, the whole thing challenges my understanding of nature, it challenges my understanding of, of how I engage with nature. It challenges so much in me. So to go there and be so deeply entrenched in it and this protocol, I did eight COVID tests while I was there and any one of them being positive. Um, and when you understand the fragility of high cycle threshold PCR, um, <laughs> you feel like you just go and Russian roulette eight times. And, and one of those coming back as a positive and found some fragment of a past COVID virus in you um, and you were going into 14 days quarantine. The thing that I did get the sense of going there was this world coming together in the name of sport. And it kind of sounds corny and it kind of sounds, you know, but even in a COVID world with social distancing and that in that in the same environment affecting the way people can engage and everything, I still got the feeling it must be incredible in a fully functioning moment. You know, and everyone engaged in that, the, the embrace of sport and all of these people coming together in, in its name. And they've all been able to avoid a real job because they were good at something, throwing a stick, throwing <laughs> a ball, hitting that ball with a racket or a bat, you know, and as, as it evolved from these super primitive sports, you know, javelin, shot put, they're just really basic concepts. 
you know, into other sports with rackets and bats of that same simple thing. And then you see as it evolves into surfing, which is a much deeper experience than the one with you against another person in a controlled environment, really felt like that that audience and the Olympic broadcasting service, the Olympics in general, they really appreciated our presence. Mate, you know, it brought that's... something pretty damn cool to things. So yeah. that was, yeah, it was a great experience. That's awesome, mate. Well, look, I think you did a fantastic job and you were definitely the right guy for the job because, you know, for my money, you're the best surf commentator on the planet and you did it justice. Thank you, mate. Thank you. And, you know, I got overwhelming positive feedback from people and it, and and during the process, right, of all of this stress, wanting to do the job well, not wanting to test positive and go into a 14-day government quarantine situation and be a leper and all of that pressure, um, a couple of times I came out from long shifts and decompressed and uh, went to the phone and saw something from my wife and she said how great I was doing. It brought me to tears. And then another time I walked out of a four or five-hour straight session and looked at a couple of texts and they were, they were so supportive and so stoked on the job I'd done. Fantastic. And, and they were so, like, emotional about it and they were thanking me and just it was and and again i had to walk off find a little corner in the international broadcast center and i was in tears just emotionally from having done a good job you know so it was a a really it was an emotional experience challenging and i feel i'm so happy that it's over (laughs) (laughs) and we did and we did a good job you know Mate, you're a really interesting character because on the one hand yeah you were a rebel and but on the other hand, at age 11, you were a man on a mission and you were telling people that, hey, I'm going to be a world champion surfer before there was really even a tour to speak of. So that was pretty precocious, particularly for an Aussie kid. Aussies aren't meant to, you know, Americans, Brazilians, I don't know, other cultures are able to say that. In Australia, you say that and you get your head punched in or chopped off. And so, yeah, yeah, so so here you are, you know, on Sydney's Northern Beaches, which is where I grew up as well. I mean, you got tickets on yourself, basically, if you say that, but you were saying it and holy shit, you went out and did it. And then you even played an important role in actually trailblazing the pro tour circuit and helping it evolve to where it is. So there's some conflicting drives in there. Tell us about (laughs) how the hell you pulled that off. Yeah, it's not many people sort of know before you're a pro surfer. You know what I mean? There's that understanding of you as a pro surfer or interpretation of you as a pro surfer as the media and the like try to stick you in a box as this type of person or that type of person or this type of surfer or that type of surfer. You know, I always had that respect for for individuality, I suppose. You know, I, I reflect back. And I don't really know the answer. I I remember meeting and seeing surfing and I was doing nippers at Whale Beach Surf Club and my father was the club captain at the Whale Beach Surf Club and my dad was a policeman. So, you know, he's a strong, powerful guy in an old school sense, you know, and there weren't too many sensitivities around the edges, you know. It was late 60s, early 70s in Australia. There is that counterculture globally rebelling against Vietnam War, all of the the potential of of what overreaching government and corporatization and all of that would do to the world, ironically enough. And I feel like I I was born in that time. That energy was in the air when I was born. And my dad being a policeman and in the surf club was always on that kind of more mainstream side of 
of that discussion. And where I lived at Whale Beach, and there was this day, you remember the old uh, pillow fights where they would sit up on the pole with the pillow, with the hand down the back of the speedos, the legs wrapped around the pole and then beat the shit out of each other until someone falls off, right? My dad's very good at that. So he's up there on the pole, got the pillow cocked in the speedos. I'm a little kid standing down below about to watch dad go into battle. And I look down to the wedge and I see this guy paddle into this beautiful, it's like a, you know, now what I know what it was now. Then I didn't, you know, it was like a four to six foot, beautiful, perfect left-hander, jumps to his feet on this yellow board, board shorts on, long blonde hair, and it's flowing in the wind. And he's riding this way through. Dad's bashing the guy with the pillow. I look back, he rides his thing into the shore, steps off onto the sand. I look up, Dad's bashing the guy with the pillow. A topless girl runs down the beach, boobs out, gives him a hug and a kiss. The dog runs up, the Afghan runs up and stands beside them. Dad's there bashing the guy with the pillow. And then the guy runs off to go get another one. And that was, for me, was that day when I was like, oh, sorry, Dad, I'm going that way. That's the way to live, you know. And for me, that was one of them moments that I always reflect on when I went, oh, I'm with that tribe, you know. And that was one of the moments when I started engaged with surfing I remember waiting outside the Avalon news agency for Surfing World magazine to arrive, going in there, looking through, asking the clerk, is it here yet? No, it's not here. I think it's been held up. Be in here tomorrow. I'll be there tomorrow. Is Surfing World in yet? And, and just living and dreaming. And then Dad passed away when I was 11, and a few months after that, Mum decided that she wanted to get out of, you know, Whale Beach back then was the boondocks, was holiday houses. There wasn't that many people living there. And, you know, it was a long way from the city. And my mum was like a city girl. She loved shopping. She loved the lights. She didn't know how she got stuck out in the boondocks because of my dad. And so we moved to Mossman. Yeah, up until that point, I was living in an age of innocence, Whale Beach, 60s, early 70s, hippies. And, you know, and it was just a really cool place to grow up as a kid, Avalon Primary School. And, and I was set to go to Baron Joey and all my friends were going there. And mum goes, we're going to Mossman. Like, where is Mossman? Oh, God. How, what do you mean, Mossman? What is it? If we go to Mossman, I'm like, there's no beach. The beach is flat. How am I going to surf? What am I going to do? And, and I've gone into the kitchen on a night before that and told my mum when she was there having a cry to herself shortly after Dad died, and I sort of walked in and I thought I could comfort her by telling her that I was going to be a world champion surfer and not to worry about anything because it's all going to be okay. So it was important to me. And when we moved to Mossman, you know, I remember going to school that very first day, didn't know one single human. You just walk into high school and go, okay, let's, let's get this going on. And then I saw kids that looked like they surfed. You know, it took me a couple of months to get the courage and go, and go hey, do you surf? And they go, yeah. I go, where do you surf? What do you mean you surf? I surf too. They're like, yeah, sure you do. I go, no, where is it? Where's the beach? Oh, we go on a Tuesday. Mum takes us after sport. And I'm like, can I come? Can I come? And so I went with them on the Tuesday after sport and I realised the beach is seven miles away and I was on again (laughs) and I could surf. And and so I hitchhiked and and from that time, I've been financially independent from that time. In my entire life, since my father passed away, I've never taken a cent off or borrowed or used a cent of my mother's money ever. And I have self-funded my adventures through, in those younger days, some creative ways. You know, and so I realized that I could hitchhike to Manly, 
So I would get in and out of four strangers' cars a day. I'd get up in the dark in my school uniform, walk out onto the road, start hitchhiking. Young boy in his school uniform, creeps everywhere. This whole hitchhiking part of my life was where I learned to communicate. That's where this came from. That's where the commentating at the Olympics came from, was getting in and out of those strangers' cars every day, wanting them to have a good time, wanting them to pick me up next time they saw me, and I'd get in that car and just start telling them stories. Yeah, my name's Barton. I'm 12 years old. I'm going to be a professional surfer. You know, da, 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 da. we do these contests, and from a training, I'm doing this, and they get to Manly, and they'd be like, beam, and like, have a good day, mate. And I go, thanks so much for the lift. Hope to see you again, you know. And off I'd go down to the beach. And then I'd surf before school. And then I would go back to the hitching spot at Manly and put the finger out and start again trying to get to school. And, you know, you can imagine I didn't make it a lot. And if the waves were good, I wouldn't make it a lot. And, and so as I reflect on all of my experiences, I left school I thought I was an idiot. School made me feel like I was dumb. And as I ventured out into the world, as I reflect on all of it now, I go, wow, mate, there was some creativity, some determination, some individuality that wasn't, I don't listen to people. And my wife always says, don't you want to know what the experts think? I go, no, I have no interest in what an expert thinks. My learning is an unlearning of what so-called experts drummed into you before you had a conscious mind and were able to think for yourself and, and try and relearn what you think about life and what these situations and opportunities are for yourself. I don't need to be told. And so somewhere in me, this is the longest answer to a question in the history of your show. No, it's all good. But somewhere in me, I haven't listened. You know, and I think it came from the, the time that I was born, the rebellious positioning of surfing as a culture at that point in time. That's what attracted me. It wasn't the man. It wasn't the mainstream. It wasn't all of which is maybe proving itself to be problematic even at these times. So in and out of them strangers' cars, I would get and tell them stories four times a day. You know, I didn't know when I was getting home. I didn't know if I'd get to the beach and I'd just get out there on that road and put the best energy out to those cars and try and hook one of them to pick me up somehow. And I would go into school, see my mates, and then we'd walk off and go up to the road and just start hitching to the beach. It was with three other guys or on your own, and I was always going. And so at a point in time, the teacher came to me and said, look, you've because I created a board riders club at Mossman High so that we had a club and I could compete, right? So I got this board riders club and we'd go down and we could do it like school sports sometimes and have our competitions and Mr Pickering surfed and he was helping us with it. And Mr Pickering came to me and said, hey, you've just got to start coming to school more, mate. We can't, you know, got to, I go, mate, well, there's nothing there for me. I'm working. I'm on my job, mate. I'm on the job. Seriously, you guys try to teach me stuff. I'm already working kind of attitude <laughs> about it, you know. And he said, what we're going to do is Mrs. Brady, who lives at Curl Curl, is going to pick you up at the corner shop at Carlton Street, which is where I used to hang there at Carlton Street, and drive you to school. And then at 3.30 when the bell goes, you go get in her car and she'll give you a lift back down to the beach. Wow. Incredible, mate. Mate, incredible. There's so many takeouts. There's so many cool things from what you just said then. But because we don't have hours, let's jump to another sort of major point in your life, which was winning a world title in 1998 in Hawaii at Pipeline. 
So we've now jumped to that, which is probably, you know, one of the biggest days of your life. I'm guessing up there with, you know, your children being born and getting married and stuff. Tell me about that. So this kid, Barton, who's living in Mossman, is in Hawaii. He's not the golden boy. He's not Tom Carroll. He doesn't have deep pockets with all of the sponsors. You've kind of got there, I guess, with grit, determination, an extremely competitive attitude, and I guess you're just a, a you know a man on a mission. But here you are in Hawaii. There's three blokes in the running for the world title: Damien Hardman and Tom Carroll, also from Sydney's Northern Beaches. All three of you goofy footers. I mean, this is incredible. So just talk us through that day and the conflicting emotions and thoughts that must have been going through your mind there. Mm. Well, it set up from the year before. Well, I, I start the world tour in 83. I finished 13th the neck in the world. And then the top 16 gets seeded. So I do one year of the trials. I'm straight into seedings. And, um, and then the next year I finish eighth. And then the next year I finish second. And I'm like, this ain't too hard. 13th, 8th, 2nd. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I haven't even really, like in a common, in a modern way of training, I didn't train. I'd run a stairs if I saw them or run the hill if I saw it. If I had to walk up it, I'd run rather than walk or I'd skip. Or, but I was like, imagine if I really work hard. And then I went and saw sports psychologists and I was training with, um, with triathletes on the northern beaches. And, you know, I was beating them in max VO2 tests and I was some kind of a bit of a physical, freak in terms of my endurance and they're all kind of getting a bit weird because I'm testing better than them in tests and stuff. And I go out on that world tour after finishing second, I fall to 13th in the world. And I'm like, Phew, that wasn't good. That, and it was, it was heartbreaking. It was the hardest I'd ever tried. It was the most I'd ever put in, but it wasn't, wasn't you. It was someone else's idea of what you should be doing, really. Um, so that was one of them great failures where you learn from. And then I went seventh, third, first. And the third year, 1987, in the first seven events, I'd won three, two other finals and two quarterfinals. So I'd made five finals out of seven events, won three of them, beaten the world champ Tom Curran two times in a row, just won back-to-back -back events out of the US Open and Europe in France. And the last event of the year is at Manly. It's at Manly Beach. It's at my home beach. It's my freaking destiny. And I'm going to win the world title at home in front of my family and friends. And at that point, after the back-to-back -back wins, we had a celebratory dinner. I had a bit of an argument with my surfboard manufacturer whose boards I weren't riding, but he's a bit bummed I wasn't riding them and he's trying to tell me what's up and I can't, mate. You know, and maybe my ego 100% would have been fluffing up like a peacock for sure. You know, there's no doubt I was a wanker. You know, when I think about it, I go, yeah, I know you. You would have been just so loud mouthed and full of yourself. And I was like, oh, God, as I look back, you know. So I'm at that next event putting on my jersey. And he was like a father figure. I'd been with Aloha Surfboard since I was 15. And, you know, we'd, have, we'd done it together, kind of. Um, and so uh, he came up to me and said, hey, I think it's best I don't make your boards anymore. And, uh, you don't ride for us as I'm putting my jersey on after back-to-back -back wins for the first heat. It was sabotage. It was proper sabotage, deliberate. And I was, like, baffled, but, like, sweet, you know, I, I wasn't riding his board, take the aloha off, whatever. But emotionally, it was a bigger thing that I realised. I went out and lost that heat first round. Wow. Number one in the world, thousands of points ahead, and I lose that heat. And then I start going, uh-oh, what if? 
what if? And I just, everyone starts catching me and I start losing and I can't handle the pressure. I've never been there before. I didn't even know what this, it was gnarly to lead and I'd never done it before and, and I crumbled. And in the end, we went into the last event at that venue at Manly with five or six of us in line for a world title. Tom Carroll, Tom Curran, Damien Hardman, Gary Elkerton, Martin Potter, Martin Lynch. I'm, I've fallen out of number one spot and I'm falling down and it's like your worst nightmares are coming true. And I had to go through the experience of losing a world title at home on your home beach. You know, and in the end, I made that final of the last event, lost to Damien in the final, but he had enough and won the world title. And uh, it was heartbreaking at the time. And that's what, wow. so 1988, I didn't even think about winning a world title. I was heartbroken. I thought, I honestly thought that I was never getting another chance. And that was my chance and I wasn't good enough. And I didn't have what it took. Oh, I was just heartbroken. I ended up putting this fist through a, I saw myself in a mirror and smacked myself in the head in the mirror and cut my hand all open and ended up in the ER that night of the, of the awards banquet night. So I was, a, you know, I was an emotional wreck and it was traumatic and I thought that that was it. It was done. Not a good advertisement for sports psychologists, mate. Well, and all of that, you know, and, and the learning's <laughs> in here, isn't it? You know? So then, I, then I, um, I went out 88 and didn't even think about it. I made nine semifinals and I hadn't won an event. And, you know, last event had changed from Manly to Hawaii. And then in Australia at the leg right before Hawaii, I won an event. And momentum was going my way, and I was still the golden children. Tom Carroll was there, you know, and everyone was calling he was going to win it. And, and then as things fell into place, yeah, at the end of the day, I was there going, wow, who would have thought I would give wow. you manly every single day of the week for pipeline? Like, you know, and you got to go through what you got to go through to get, you know, so I don't feel like I did it. I don't sit there with ego and confidence and arrogance and go, that was me, that was all me. I made that happen because I'm so good and I work so hard, and, you know what I mean? I don't have any of that. I look at it and go, oh, it's a, some kind of miracle, mate. You know, and I believe that about life itself as you've lived life. There is an energetic connection we have to, to destiny, to manifestation, to the opportunity to build whatever you want in this life. And I'm living testament to it. You know what I mean? I, I do it every, every day. I was like, I need a jet ski in Hawaii. And then you turn around, you're like, oh, come on. Wow, that's cool. I need a this there, and you turn around, and you go, well, it's there. And you know, I honestly believe that that things operate on a much deeper level than we're led to understand and believe, and that the education system's designed to make good slaves, not good free-thinking entrepreneurial young individuals who are going to save the world from whatever, you know. And and that was my experience with that. Although there was that support of giving me the lifts, that was a point of desperation <laughs> that the teachers had to because I had a couple of little ways of managing absenteeism that meant that I was in pretty good position. <laughs> there were notes handed in for everything. There was a role management process where I understood how the role worked and would offer to take it down to the office once a month and go through it and fix up my absenteeism in the role or with the forged <laughs> note process. So I was, a, I was a conniving, cheeky, naughty, but I was made to be that way. You know what I mean? Because I wasn't respected and they wasn't given that opportunity for you to flourish as you wanted to flourish. They wanted me to do what they told me to do. And that was always a problem for me, you know. 
No, mate, you had to fight for it, and um, clearly that was a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Tell me about pipe. I've surfed pipe. I've surfed, you know, sunset and most of the waves across the North Shore there, but I'm a goofy footer and pipes obviously, well, not these days, but for most of the last 40, 50 years, the ultimate hollow left. I love the way you articulate surfing. There'll be a lot of people listening to this that don't surf and know nothing about surfing. Would you mind describing for us, you're out the back at Pipeline and just the perceptions and the things that are going on as you're jockeying around to be in the right position to catch the wave, drop down, the feeling of gravity, you know, compressing your body. Can mm. you talk us through all it? Because there's probably 50, 50 perceptions and, and things mm-hmm. that are going on at that time. There's yeah. a lot going on. It happens very quickly. But when you're doing it, it almost goes into slow motion. Yeah. And you almost separate from your body and you're watching and doing all of these things without even knowing they're happening. But I'd love to hear you talk us through dropping into a 10-foot wave at Pipeline. Oh, well, I'd like to do it again. Um, <laughs> you can see, the, you can see the, uh, the helmet there in the corner. Um, I, you know, I'm up at Sunset Beach, and so I've, I haven't, I don't go down the pipeline very much. It's the most crowded wave on the North Shore, and it's where you go to be seen and to make stuff happen. And I'm kind of in a different phase of my life. And last year I went, you know what, we're going back. And when my good mate uh, Derek Ho passed away, he was maybe the only guy from our generation still riding pipeline on a regular basis and and dominating and, and the king of pipeline, really, you know. And when Derek passed, I was like, I can't not go back there. For me, I, I like one example is I took a, a deaf, dumb and blind lady surfing with the Disabled Surfing Association at Collaroy. And so she can't see, she can't hear, she can't talk. She's communicating through her hand language with her interpreter who's telling us, and we push her onto a little whitewater this big, and she rides that little whitewater for 25 metres laying on her stomach and said through uh, her interpreter that to her, someone who's sensory on those levels, it felt exactly like flying. So to those that don't interpret with their eyes, don't interpret with their, their hearing, to her, when she was flying in a plane, so when she was riding on that surfboard, it felt like the same thing. And so wow. you, that's a, that's a, a white water that's, you know, call it not even knee-high, knee-high white water that's a rumbling. When that wave breaks and you imagine that that thing has travelled its way for thousands of kilometres through some ocean, building energy, coming to this moment, and, and which is from some, you know, storm or major uh, weather event that's occurred, and all of that energy, we, we it's, it then comes to the shore and just laps there at the end of its life. And before that energy dissipates and disappears essentially from the universe, we tap into it and ride it. And it's a, such a special thing in that way. And I, I'm in love with that feeling. And so for me, a lot of my surfing life was spent with ambition and with focus that we've talked about. Um, now it's it's lived and it, the engagement that I have with it is a very different thing. And it's really now just a, a teaching and a learning experience. You know, I learn so much every surf I go for about myself and I bring a conscious awareness to my emotions and to my behaviour. And I know that we have an inner intelligence that is beyond the concept of us, the thinking part of us, to control and to make happen. And when those waves are breaking a pipeline and it is 
pitching in that moment of its final throw of energy and it's built up for miles and it's come through this water that doesn't have a continental shelf. So it's come through deep water and then hits that shallow thing, as you know from surfing, and just raises up and rears into this moment of anger, really, of violence and beauty and, and just this incredible sight that is so beautiful. And it has all of those, those elements of life, of nature in it, in that moment. And for you to do that well, it's hard to be a dickhead and do that well, right? There needs to be a certain involvement of yourself to be able to do that, to be able to connect with it. Well, you can do it once, but to do that on a regular basis and to connect with such a violent moment of life, really every paddle in is the ultimate surrender. You could die. People have. You may. Every paddle in. You know what I mean? And so there's, there's extreme consequence and it takes enormous courage and it takes enormous knowledge and, and, and but it takes the, the confidence in the relationship between you and it that you can be its friend. In surfing, you can't go at surfing, you can't go at waves like that thinking you're going to beat it. I'm going to conquer this, this moment of energy like a, like a bull rider conquers a bull. I don't know if the bull rider gets on the bull and thinks I'm going to conquer this, I'm going to master it, or whether there's a, a level of mutual respect between the beast and the human that an engaged moment of real living demands of you. And that's the problem for a lot of life in the sedentary way we live as slaves in a modern capitalist corporate world is that there's no space and time for you to challenge yourself like that. So the challenges become things that aren't even challenges and they're things you're thinking in your head that you're taking so seriously because you haven't been challenged by the real girth of life, you know? So I think that pipelines... Pipeline's one of those therapists <laughs> that, that, that just, you know, it's there every day. And it, for people that don't, sir, every single wave that has ever broken in the history of waves and the history of our universe has been different. And in the same way that every single zebra has got a different stripe pattern and every single, you know, and you look at all of this individuality, every wave that's broken a pipeline's been different. Never been two the same. That's where the engagement and a, a lifelong commitment to, to surfing comes from, is that, that path of learning and that path of growth and knowing that you never win it. It's going to kick your ass, mate. And I've had so many injuries and hurt myself so many times, you get to the point where I don't care about that either. I get injured and I'm out for three months. I'm kind of like, well, cool, four stress. What are we going to do? What's our project during this process of downtime, you know? And I just accept all of the punches. Yeah. Mate, thanks for sharing. That's that's beautiful. I love hearing your description and insights as to your relationship with the ocean. And I have heard you before talk about the ocean and the surf as your medicine, and, and I can yeah. totally relate to that. I mean, for so many, that's what it is, you know, and I suppose that's exposure to nature as well, you know. I look at my engagement with life and back to dad and growing up at Whale Beach and, and um, the position that an animal stood in, in life was very different to how I view an animal in life today. Animals were there as kind of non-emotional aids to help man get to where they wanted to get. You know what I mean? They didn't have their own sensitivities. They didn't have their own feelings. They weren't really respected in that way. They were more there as a tool of man. And when you saw a cockroach running across the floor, that was some dirty little creature that needed to be killed. 
quick, get it. There's ants in the house. Ah! You know, <laughs> and there's this denial. And with all due respect to all the religions and people's beliefs and creation stories of the world, everyone's got them. There's creation stories all across every culture because there's a need to know. And, and for me, I don't need to know. I'll tell you when I'm dead. How does that work? Because I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. And I've looked around. I have no. So when I looked at the animals, I, I, I've got this relationship where we, we stop doing the pest control around the house. And I see these cockroaches at night. They, they come out and I'm like, hey, I told you guys, when I'm in bed and we're asleep, you can do whatever you want. But get out before we do her in bed. And I see the I see the ants, and I go, "Wow, there's stuff living here. We're part this diverse organism that we all are the same of. Our environment that that I have medical friends who describe it as a viral soup, and essentially the ocean. What is it? Four to ten, whatever it is viral. You're going in when you go into the ocean. You're in this viral soup. Our, our soil is this viral soup. Our air is this viral soup. We're living in, and so my understanding of myself in this world is very different to that of being a creature, uh, better than a creature and created of God. I see myself the same as all of it. And, and the, that great documentary, The Old Fabulous Fungi, and I'm not sure if you've seen that, where they, and they talk about the mycelium network that capsulates our earth and the trees communicate. And when a tree is ill, the trees send their energy to that tree and the root systems of mycelium throughout the planet. So there's this very, very deep understanding of who we are as people that modern medicine doesn't factor in, doesn't consider us. I have this position where I look at myself and my environment and my place in it as equal. I don't look at us as better. I don't look at us as... And that's the attitude... Surfing kind of gives you too. It keeps you in your place and your understanding of your place in things. Absolutely, mate. Couldn't agree more. And the censorship that's going on of alternative medicine and other things at the moment is of great concern. And I sort of don't want to go off too deep no. into that whole world. But I think as surfers and our relationship with the ocean and the medicinal nature of it makes our antenna quite alert to bullshit in the space. And what's happening is, um, you know, it's disturbing. But I'm not going to go down that path. We're going to move on to some other cool things. It is the elephant in the room. You know, is... I mean, you're doing interviews with people and, and you're talking about something as frivolous as freaking surfing. Yeah. And then you look at the picture and you go, well, what about the elephant in the room? Well, we just ignore that. Okay, we'll just ignore that and go on. You know, I value, I value my right to self-determination. It's been a long time you know, that I've been living that way and, and, and trusting in this, trusting my own inner, inner intelligence, connecting on, on with my environment, connecting with the ocean, connecting with my life. And it's, it's you know, I love, the, I love this world we live in, mate. I love the opportunity. When you look at it, we are in a golden moment where the conditions on a planet in the middle of 80 billion years are right for life. And we're it. And, and organisms have evolved to this point where there's these sophisticated, intelligent beings living in amongst this incredible moment in time. And when your dad, when your father dies in, in a, like he, 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 he had what he called to my, said to my mum was the best day of his life because he took him and his three boys out in his tinny that he bought and saved up and bought a tinny on the pit water and we went fishing. 
caught little sharks or fish, had this unreal day. He goes off to work, rings his mum, you know, night shift police, rings mum, tells her he's going to be home later and, and then doesn't get home. Gone. Boom. And you wake up to the crying of your mother and you know the shit is at the van. When you've had experiences like that and then someone tells you to live for t- don't live today, there's a better day tomorrow. If you just sacrifice today, I can't do that, mate. It's not in my makeup. And the fact that there's a generalisation to the treatment of anything gives no respect to the individuality of all of us, back to the zebras and their stripes. You know what I mean? And we're all so different. And there needs to be respect for the differences. And this divide, pandemic, plandemic kind of divide, to me, um, we can't let them divide us. And I don't care what people do. I love them. Let's do what you want. Yeah. Make yourself yeah. happy. That's your obligation, isn't it, is to make yeah. yourself happy. And and if people do that and we accept each other, then we Well said, to, mate. The stoke yeah, will well, see us through, I keep saying. <laughs> well said. Well, look, that's a good segue to another way that you're bringing people together, and that's with the BL Blast Off. Tell us about that and what was the seed for that and tell us how you are bringing kids together, families together, and in this time it's so important. Yeah, and that's that. That was you know we've done the the physical events for fourteen years. Again, I got injured. I knew I was out for three to six months, and I was like, okay. What's the project? And I thought I've had this idea for a in Hawaii. They're called Menahunis style events. The kids' events are called Menahunis. They were the first people to really do the really young kids' events were over here in Hawaii. And I saw that, and then I realised that. When kids go to contests in Australia, they'll hear they got a 2.38 and a 3.75 and he got a 4.92 and a 1.83 and your two-way totals are 7.38 and his was a 14.95 and you came first and he came and you're like, what does all that mean? And I've been around it all my life. It's very hard to decipher. <laughs> it's very hard to understand. So I was like, there's better ways to do this. And kids under 14, they should be surfing with the focus on just enjoying it and getting better at it. Um, and, and I'm all about getting better because of my experience has been the better you get at things, the more fun they are. So I focus on that improvement part. And I said to them, we're going to do an event. We're not going to score a single ride for three days. They're like, you can't do that. And I go, yeah, we're going to. We can, you know. And in sense, I've had a lot of those through my life. Like, you know, at school, you can't do that. You need a trade behind you. No, don't worry, I'm going to. You know, you can't do the, the blast off and not score rides and have heats without scoring rides. No, we're going to. And we coach the kids and we give them feedback on what they've done right, what they've done wrong. They all surf three times in the physical events and come back so they're not eliminated. So a lot of what we did was creative and different to the normal traditional surfing competitions, which took off, got great momentum. We took it to Bali. We were taking it to the Maldives and we are starting to spread our our, our, our brand and our ideas globally with it. And then this COVID happened and I'd had the idea for a video challenge for a while. I went, well, now's the time. This is perfect. And, you know, the art form is to turn negatives into positives. You can be doing that all the time. You know, that's the injury to the blast off, to the blast off to a video challenge. And so we, we did it and uh, we had a six-week open window and we got 505 videos from 20 different countries connected with kids from places like the Canary Islands and India. I've got a, a, a young little girl from a fishing village in India sent in her video. I'm, a, I'm the only girl that serves in my village. So, you know, we had just created this global community of frothing little kids who just, you know, came together for this seven-week event period and our focus is just on getting better. 
and I coach every single one of the videos and in the chat room put a whole bunch of coaching and I have other coaches go in there and do the same and pro surfers go in there and do the same and and stoke the kids out and stoke their parents out and take our Australian community to a global community and um and again bring some bring some good stuff into people's lives Mate, that's beautiful. You know, it's really interesting because like often the the trailblazers in different businesses, whether entrepreneurs or or different sports, those people often don't get to benefit from the dollars and the lucrative things that come from what they build. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, the money wasn't big when you were a pro surfer and it, and it is pretty decent these days for the, you know, the oh. world champs and what, 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 <laughs> what have you. So hundred I mean, k. 100k uh, a win? Wow. Wow. I just out. I can't believe it. And then you think about John John's Florence's uh, Hurley contract. Um, I figured that that was about 300k a month, a month surfing. I was like, wow, yeah. it's beyond anything we would have dreamt. Yeah, it is. It's it's wild. So let's take us back a few years because at one point, and I just wanted to ask you about this because it's just a great insight into that era and how things have changed. But were well, they called the ASP back then? But there was the body that governed surfing and the tour and the contests and that kind of thing. And you were essentially sort of the most articulate and had become the leader amongst the pro surfers. You initiated a coup against the board and managed to sort of kick out the the CEO. I think you had a vote of 13 to 1, and, and it ushered in a new era that sort of took it from the best surfers in the world surfing, you know, shitty waves but in the big cities and all of that, to heading it towards the best surfers in the world surfing, the best waves in the world, which is sort of what it's become today. So the surfers of today <laughs> have, have a lot to thank for the people like Rabbit Bartholomew and yourself that blazed that trail. Are you proud of that? And I guess it must be satisfying that it's sort of come full circle in a way. And I'd say you are respected for what you've done these days because you probably got you got a bit of a rep at that time and you got blacklisted from some of the uh, the governing bodies and, and all of that stuff. So, I mean, in a nutshell, talk me through that cycle. Yeah. Um, so it was at that point in time where you could see on the horizon the multimedia age. You could see that it was going there. And, and, and the original concepts of IPS, ASP, was to create a sport. So surfing exists, but it doesn't really exist in a sport form. So they create a sport and they do heats and they score the rides and, and they create this sport. And the idea then was to get bums on seats, you know, put scaffolding and big stands up on the beach and have tens of thousands of fans come down and, and create a sport and a sporting environment. And they did. And those early US Opens and a lot of those events were fantastic events, massive crowds and, and a really great point in surfing. And I was committed to that program. I, I would talk of myself as an athlete. We were... You know, we were changing public perception of surfers. That's what we were in the business of. And given my ability to talk out of getting in and out of those four strangers' cars a day, I found myself doing a lot of that representation and, and talking for the sport. Um, and on behalf of the surfers, when Rabbit Bartholomew retired from the ASP board, he came to me and said, look, you're the obvious guy to take the role over. And so I did, and I, I felt like it was pretty comfortable. But the, so taking those best surfers in the world and getting the bleachers full, they went to city beaches, Manly, Bondi, Huntington Beach, you know, beaches in Tokyo. And the best surfers in the world were surfing the worst waves in the world. 
and you had a show. It was pretty sick in its own right, but it just wasn't the best show it could be. And we wanted to surf good waves. And what started happening was free surfers became a commercial entity at this time because the only people making money were pro surfers, you know, not going to work, you know, who are the only ones who had a job that go to the beach and a judge or whatever. But, uh, but then as it sort of evolved, photographers and brands started working with surfers who weren't on tour, taking them to the best waves in the world, getting amazing footage and images, and then promoting them instead of competitors. And the surfing world was looking down on the competitors and getting to a point where they were going, hey, this guy's a better surfer than those guys because they'd seen him in videos and seen him on great waves and we're there at Huntingdon bouncing around trying to put on a show. And it was detrimental to all of us. Um, an American surfer, Jeff Booth, wrote a, a letter to Surfer Magazine and said, hey, pay respect to the competitors as well. We're, but And so we're going to the association, hey, you've got to get us. The best surfers in the world are losing their position in the pecking order, so to speak, because of the ways we're surfing and the product that you've turned it into. And now's the time. We don't need crowds. You've done that. It had worked and done that job. And it was time to move on. But the administration were very slow to listen to us and they wouldn't listen to us. Um, so at a point we went, well, they've got to go. Um, and so in the back rooms, I communicated with the surfer base and my surfer rep allies who were on the board with me. And we got approval from the surfers. I went and spoke with Brazil and they went, yeah, no, we're coming with you. That's a good idea. So we knew because we had seven votes and the events had seven votes. We needed one vote from the other side to own that thing. And I used to say it to the surfers, we own half of professional surfing. We can make this anything we want. This is an incredible asset. And people sit there going, oh, yeah, whatever, Bill. No worries, mate. Yeah, Quicksilver will pay me or whatever. I don't care. You know what I mean? So the top guys weren't really politically active because they were looked after. And it was down at the end there in the, in the ranks where we were fighting to spread it round and give everyone else some. So we did. We created the coup. We knew we had the eight votes. We went to the meeting, caught everyone off guard. We proposed that we replace, you know, we terminated the CEO, the general manager, and we tried to get the tour manager, but he survived that vote. But both votes went 13-1 in the end, which was incredible, and, and it kind of proved the moment. The part I'm not proud of or the part, oh, there's parts to it where the, the, the further extension of that was to advertise the spot. We put Graham Stapleberg, who was a judge and an accountant, someone we knew in an interim capacity, and we were going to advertise the spot and get someone from outside of surfing and, and really take this thing in the direction it needed to go. But, you know, my career's winding down. I'm at the end of my career. I'm still in there fighting. A lot of the old guard have retired. The new guard, Kelly Slater, Rob Machado, Shane Dorian, they're all there. They're listening to Soul Boat complain about the way it is. And they're going, we just got here. It's sick. We're going to smash you, you whinger. You know what I mean? And it was really, it was a difficult time. And I, I, had, I ended up with no sponsors. I was doing the tour on prize money. Um, alone. I went back on the QS so I could compete more in 93 and I won the QS at 30 years of age against all the kids that year. I just went to compete because I needed money. I'd had some things go wrong in the back end of, of financial stuff as well. There was a big pressure. And, and so I just went and did that. But I suppose in the end, that was the start of the Dream Tour. That's when the Dream Tour started, the coup. The, we didn't follow through. Um, the company saw what that the lunatics were running the asylum, right? Essentially, and and that's when the companies took over pro surfing and took over the ASP. Rabbit went in as the uh, 
as the general manager. Right. And those yeah. three companies ran the sport, owned the sport, yeah. blacklisted yeah. me. And and that to me was disappointing because I they were like the last people we wanted to give it to. But you know, we were lied to in a couple of meetings where you know we had a deal with TWI and another deal with CSI, big multinational media companies. We were going to vote for those deals. One was through IMG. And the night before the meeting, I got courted by the companies. We did. And they said, hey, don't go that way. They don't know surfing. We know surfing. And I was like, hey, that's right. And you would be the perfect partners, but we can't go backwards. We got end of year prize money. We got medical insurance, got superannuation. We had all of these things for the first time organized to go. And they talked us into going with them and said, no, we'll do all of that. You won't go backwards. We'll do all of that. And so we go to the meeting the next day, vote against this multinational deal. They don't even see it coming. We look like absolute idiots. And that, that happened twice with two big deals. And that's when I resigned from the board. I went, hey, I'm going to sit here and be lied to. I'm not going to be treated like a puppet and you guys are just going to do what you want anyway. I'm going to get on and save my life. I'm going to get a job. I hate what I'm doing. I don't even like being around you guys. And I'm going to go get a job and I'm going to support my family. I've got a young daughter. I'm going to go reinvent and create the next chapter of my life. You know, and I resigned from the board, did a couple more years on tour and <laughs> scrambled together as much money as I could and then got out of there. And um, so there's, there's disappointment in it. Right. But when you look at, you know, long term and how it's all panned out and rolled from those companies into WSL, yeah. WSL has been the best thing that's happened. Um, there, there's elements of that that could be better, like with everything. But I feel the respect that they have for the surfers and the surfers are what are considered above all else most of the time. It's incredible. It blows my mind. I sit there and go, don't worry about them. They're getting 100K. Put them to work, mate. You know? <laughs> mate, <laughs> so um, th- it, it's all for the better. Yeah, no, thanks for that. It's a great contribution you made, and it's it's great to see that the surfers have the respect that they do to this day and that you've sort of come full circle now where, you know, you really are appreciated, hence the Olympics and these, you know, kind of other things. So I'm glad glad you're still alive to enjoy some of the fruits of your earlier good work. <laughs> yeah, thank you, mate. No, it's been an incredible life. Yeah. You know, I look at all of it and it's, I, I've lived my dreams. So I'm one of them lucky humans. And even beyond the Pro Tour, I look, that's just a chapter. Winning a world title is a chapter. It's more important. This next chapter is way more important than that, way more important to me. And I, I live... I live for that next swell. I live for winter starting. I live for pushing myself out there in that ocean. And I love that whole experience that it brings. And so it's it's all about the surfing for me. And when I bumped into Michael Ho after his brother had died, that's what he said to me. He goes, it's just, he was having trouble making sense of a lot of it. He goes, but, Bill, it's just all about the surfing, eh? It's all about the surfing. And for us lifelong addicts, that's – I just – and I don't care what I ride. I don't care what it's like. I don't. I just want to go. You know. So, <laughs> thank you for having me. Fantastic. Hey, um, I heard you had a video game sort of coming down the track. Can you tell us anything about it? Yeah, you find yourself in life, and you find yourself at places and moments, and like the manly to pipeline experience. That just taught me that you ain't in control. You, you know, I put out what I want out there, but it ain't going to happen the way I want it or in the time I want it or as long as it does, that's, you know. And, and so I've just learned so much in that space and I've, I live in a way now where I've differentiated or learned to differentiate between the information that comes from me feeling 
and my instinctive, intuitive self and the stuff that comes from me thinking, the freaking lunatic I have to live with in my head, you know? <laughs> and and I, I spend my time differentiating that information and, and picking my lines, making my decisions. I've turned down some incredible jobs. You know, I got offered I got offered the liberal seat for Manly back in the uh, 90s when David Hay took me into Parliament House, into Nick Reiner's office, got formally offered the, the seat for Manly. And went, oh, I think you got the wrong bloke. I can't do that. You know, I've been offered the head coach of the high performance, Surfing Australia High Performance Centre up there on Casu Arena. I've been offered the general manager role for Hurley Australasia. I've been offered a lot of different jobs in my life. And I say no to two thirds of the things that come my way because I, I know what I, I want to be free and I want to live my life and I want to surf and I want to be doing those things that are important to me. And so I feel like there's this lesson in in making decisions, the decision-making being the most important thing in your life, because you're making them every moment of every day, and being aware of the information and where it's coming from and the impact it's having on you and the way it's directing you or affecting you or leading you to your next place where you're going to find yourself. And being conscious in that space gives you the opportunity to make those decisions not based on ego, not based on, but just based on a gut instinct or a feel. And I feel like that, you know, when I look at the Olympics, I look at where I found myself in this life, you know. You know, I'm not proud of what I've done. I'm not, you know, I don't kind of embrace it. I'm just happy that I've made my own decisions. And by, as a byproduct, I've made enormous amounts of mistakes. <laughs> made so many mistakes, eh? Like you, you look at all the good stuff and it's way outnumbered by the failures, right. especially as a professional <laughs> surfer. Especially as a professional surfer too. Like you yeah. lose most of the time. Well, I did... I did 15 years, I won one. You know, there's all, and there's that, you've just got to be okay with, with the process. And if I put myself there, I'm 100% okay with it. Whatever the experience is, whatever I've got to go through, if I put myself there, then I must need to be there. This is a lesson I'm meant to learn. That's what I've had, I suppose, where we kind of mentioned it earlier. I've had that right to self-determination. I've put myself into places of being fantastic and terrible. And in the end, I feel like now in that at the back end of your life, you've become better at knowing yourself and better at playing the games of life. You know, I'm, I, I do I do it with happiness. I do it with a deep happiness, mate, because I feel like, yeah, I'm just happy where I am. I was just sitting there with my son, sitting over our veggie patch, and he's got his arm around me and his arm on my leg, and he's playing with my hand, and we're looking at our veggies that are growing. And and so neighbour just brought around two baby chickens that they found. You know, a maroon from their little pack, and he's, they're in there looking after these baby chicks. And life is so good. That's fantastic. So it's just fantastic. And then I go into the real world. <laughs> I'll turn on and go, oh, no, I forgot. Oh, my God. I had moments without that in it, you know, and, and, and then you realize where we're in. And so I can't even remember the question. <laughs> ah, <that's- laughs> Mate, actually, the, the the question, mate, there was lots of gold in there, but the question was, um, is the video game on the horizon? Oh, yeah, <laughs> thank you. What a trip that was. Um, yeah, no, um, yeah. So a couple of years ago, I got approached to help um, a couple of brothers from Western Australia with a video game project, and um, I was like, wow, fifty six, whatever I was there a couple of years ago, fifty six, and working in the video game space. Sure, I'll help you. So I figured, so I've been consulting. We've got uh, surfers um, 
you know, contracted to the game. We've got sponsors sponsoring an event that's a surfing video game based on a world tour. And that world tour has 12 stops and um, some of the best waves in the world. And um, you can go in there and you build your avatar, build yourself. Um, I've got an avatar in there. Who would think, mate, that's in all cool. of the world that I'd be 58 years old and have an avatar in a video game? When they were looking at me going, when are you going to do something decent with your life? When are you going to stop that kid's stuff surfing? You're going to have to grow up one day. You're going to have to, you know, and I look at it and go, wow, I'm so glad I didn't listen to you lot, you know. I think it around cryptocurrencies. I, I, spent, I spent 20 bucks on 150 Binance coins, right, under 20 bucks. You know, they're worth 400 each now. It's like so I turned 20 bucks into 60 grand because I didn't listen to them Muppets. You know what I mean? So, so there's something in identifying your own truth, isn't there? Um, so wow. the video game is going to be released before Christmas. Um, Fantastic. It's, it's, you know, there's a lot of work been going on and, and, and I'm pretty excited and I can't believe I'm, you know, I found myself in a time of, of people being forced online because of COVID restrictions and regulations and so on, and I sit there with a, a blast-off video challenge and a surfing video game and go, how did I get here? Wasn't good plan. And, and again, it's like pipeline. Wasn't me. Wasn't good planning. It wasn't like a deliberate excursion into the world. You know, in two years' time, it's going to be COVID and everyone's going to be forced online and video game sales are going to go through the roof and you'll be situated with one. Who would have thought? So again, it's not. It's not by. It's it's just by that the 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 being involved and in, in contact with your own intuition. And throwing yourself out there into into life and, you know, communicating to people and opening doors and opening opportunities. And if you keep throwing yourself out there often enough, you're going to be in the right place at the right time sometimes. And and, and uh, Otis Kerry, the, the great Australian Aboriginal surfer, he said to me last night in a conversation that if you're connected to your intuition, you can't be lied to. And I went, Wow. That's a fantastic way to put it because mm. he goes, I'm connected to my intuition and he's connected to his people, to his culture, to mm. his bloodline, back to the, you know, the oldest living civilization of the on the planet that our government and we choose not to even ask how they did it mm. in the design of our society because we know better. Yeah. It's like, please, yeah. you know. So yeah. he, that, that, when he said that to me, I think that, you know, if you're connected to your intuition, you can't be lied to. I was like, that's a powerful statement. Yeah. I was like, thanks for sharing that with me. And I feel like that's kind of how you make things right for yourself. Yeah. You know, you don't need to be told. You don't need people to teach you. You don't. You just need to connect to that inner intelligence that you have, that we all have, that every single one of us has, that is from, you know, those billions of years of life forms being on these planets, literally billions and billions, amount of time you can't even comprehend that, you know, that's all in there. It's in you. It's in all of us, and that that can when you can connect to that power and be grounded in, in on this planet, in this universe, knowing that you're just the same as all of it. I think that that's the power, and that's yeah, and that's how I got. That's where I kind of sit there and go, wow. And I do. I scratch my head and go, wow, a lot. Wow, I'm in Hawaii. I'm living in Hawaii. Wow, you know all those types of types of moments, and and so and none of it's. I don't claim any of it you know i just had courage to trust myself maybe you know i didn't i didn't 
You know, it's it's a deep, much deeper, much bigger, much more powerful thing than me. That's for bloody sure. Well, you're you're a humble man, but all the same, you've had the guts to keep launching yourself out off the precipice and um, hope that you'd land on your feet. <laughs> um, can but- I tell you? Can I tell you one that will shock? It's probably most probably shock people, but this is an example of what, exactly what you just said. So I'm on the side. I'm hitchhiking home from Manly, and um, we we have this. Uh, we, we at Pitwater Road, where it meets Sydney Road, there's a set of lights in that right-hand turn. And in summer, there'll be six people up that hill hitchhiking. And I wasn't going seventh in line. And so we started at that set of lights where people are stopped to turn right. I would stand there. We would stand there, walk up to windows, knock on the window and go, hello. And they'd look out their window and scare them sometimes. they turn look up and then they go, yeah, you wind down the window? And they wind down the window. Hi, I'm Barton. Um, I'm heading to Mosna. I was wondering if I might be able to get a ride. And they go, oh, no, sorry, mate. No, they go, okay, thank you very much. Have a nice day. I walk to the next car, knock on the window. Excuse me, I'm Barton. I'm going to... And then drive past the hitchhikers, jump in the car before we go, and then drive past the hitchhikers up the hill. Um, one day we do this. I've got my little brother in the back, and we used to have some sign language, so we understood, you because know, we would get picked up on a fairly regular basis by pedophiles. You know, that was no, to me, that is in my the pedophilia and that whole abuse of children in my world was very obvious. My little brother was abused by his school teachers. We, we spent a couple of years in court and that creep, four of the kids, that creep got taken to, to, to jail. But so I'm there in the car with my, my brother in the back and I get the sensation that perhaps the driver's masturbating. And I'm sitting in the front and I look, oh, no. And I, reach around the back and I grab my brother's leg and I let him know the next lights were out. The car pulls up at Condamine Street and, and Sydney Road there and at the red light we jump out. I start kicking the door of that car and the guy drives off through the red light. It's three months later and I'm on the side of the road hitching and three 144s, the bus, have come past. Well, I'm not spending money on a bus. I don't have it to spare on a bus, you know. I'm hitchhiking it as long as it takes. And I'm starting to get desperate. It's been, I've been there an hour call it, you know, more. And then uh, this car pulls up. I'm like, yes, no, what is this car? Oh, I know this car. Oh, no, it's the it's the wanker. Oh, no, what do I do? What do I do? We're going. We've got to go. We've got to get there. So I jump into the back of his car, go just sit there in my head, go to my happy place. I'm surfing in my head. I'm, you know, I'm dreaming. I'm dreaming. I'm, I'm, and I just sit in the back of the car. I don't say a word. I don't engage. And normally I'm really there, you know. I don't even yeah. look. I don't even know. I don't even know, right? I'm emotionally in my space. He gets there. I, I get out. He'll, he'll be good. Drops me off. I get out. I say thanks very much. And I, I, I'll walk to the beach and go surfing. But that wow. decision to get into that car when you're a 14-year-old kid or whatever it is <laughs> was an example of, an example of what you might have to go through mate it's wow wow that's uh that's wild i mean it's interesting isn't Shocking, it? just, eh? just, just um i mean it is my mum's at home yeah my mum's at home doesn't even know where i am what i'm doing all day every day yeah. <laughs> running your own show young school kid just just running your show, man, managing people managing life managing humans as a teenager yeah. With kind of purpose and focus that is most probably quite unusual when I've when I as a coach of kids as someone yeah. who works in the space you know 
Well, you so kind of, uh, yeah, you developed street smarts and I guess had exactly. to fight, fight for it was in a way kind of, um, it's pretty comfortable in Australia. The Aussie surfers these days, there's a lot of talent there, but they don't have to fight as much as say the Brazilians do. And so they're hungrier, the Brazilians. And it's no surprise that we see three Brazilians, one, two and three in the WSL this year. Yeah, you feel it, don't you? Mm. You know, I, I say that about judges and judging. They sit there watching surfing all day. They are bored. Mm. They always watch a surf. Mm. They want to feel something. Yeah. And I always use that analogy of movies when I'm coaching kids and I'm trying to illustrate how to, to, to engage themselves. And I use that idea of method acting. And an actor, call it Russell Crowe and he's Spartacus, he's not at home thinking he's Russell or in the, in the trailer thinking he's Russell Crowe. Mm. He takes that time to absorb himself into that character and into that role that he's playing. And when he goes to play that role, any insecurities, any doubt, any lack of connection to the role and to the moment we feel as an audience. And when he doubts and he's not in there and he's not playing that, when I watched um, Dances with Wolves, that was three hours that felt like a few minutes. I was so engaged. And when it ended, I'd forgotten I was in the cinema. I forgot that there were people around me. I was so engaged and connected to the performances. And that's what judges want. Judges need to feel you. They don't want to see you. They don't watch it. If you're only dealing on that level with them, you're missing half the game, you know. You need to connect with them on, a, on an emotional level and they want to feel your passion, your desire, your individual, who you are. You know, they want to connect with that. Imagine being an actor. It must be such a liber Give you so much. Let's look at life with such liberty because you realise you could be anything in a moment. You could act and pretend to be absolutely anything. You could become it Yeah. through three months of training. You're a boxer or whatever it is, yeah. eh, you know. Well, some of them describe it as flying, like we might describe surfing. So it's another way of giving you that freedom and that feeling. Mate, that's fantastic. Hey, um, just about to wrap up, but I'm going to share something with you that, uh, I mean. <laughs> he I, saved this one, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I doubt you remember this, but you might once I tell you. So I grew up surfing at Manly as well, you know, same beach as you. And I was in Wind and Sewerage Board Riders Club yep. for a short while there at North Stain. I'm about 14 or yep. 15 and I'm out in the surf and you're out there. It's very exciting because you're like, you know, the hero of the beach, the future world champion, that kind of vibe. I've, I've like bailed out, like for those that don't know, I've, I've let go of my board rather than duck dive under a wave in front of me. You're on that wave. Somehow my board has hit your thigh and I think corked your thigh. We come up, you know, struggling for air. You scream at me, you know, you fucking kook or whatever you've said. <laughs> Whatever, oh, you, yeah, no, whatever you've said to me and I'm like, oh, my God, I've like, you know, I've destroyed the leg of the, you know, future world champion <laughs> from our beach and I'm like, oh, no, and I'm like, I've, I've got to get out of here. Not long after, I'm thinking, shit, I've got to get out of, like, North Stain. I think I need to go to Queenscliff and I go and join <laughs> I go and join Queenscliff Board Riders Club and, and that's where I stayed. And I don't think I've had a conversation with you since that time. So <laughs> that is amazing. That is an amazing story. That is so good. Oh my god! Oh. Sorry for driving you to Queenscliff. Oh mate, that was I know. Terrible. You, you know. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's a great story. Too good. Oh. I've, and you know, I've had people pick me up when who picked me up hitchhiking, and I've bumped into them in later life, and they've said to me, 
I picked you up hitchhiking one day. You told me you were going to do that. I go, wow, how incredible is that? So those times down there at North Stain, wind and sewerage, young kids, not a parent to be seen, right? Yeah. All these young teenage kids, different ages, and then different groups from different um, western suburbs, so to speak, and all coming down the beach and hanging out. And they were they were amazing days. That was like, you know when you watch the movie Big Wednesday? Yeah. And there's that, it's like a fantastic celebration of that surfing counterculture and the way it was. I feel like we got to live a part of that in those days Absolutely. at Manly as young kids, you know, the way the world was and the way it was was, you wouldn't swap it for the world, would you, you know? No, no, absolutely, mate. Well, look, that's a good point to wrap up. Um, thanks so much for having a chat today. Thanks thanks for the inspiration. Thanks for, thanks for being a goofy footer. Thanks for Yay. being a goofy footer from my home beach that went and won a world title. It's been wonderful to watch your journey and thanks for everything you give back to the sport. Thank you, Lee. It's, it's great to reconnect after all those years. Sorry for calling you a kook. And uh, um, yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, it's, let's, let's just, you know, we're all going to stay positive. We're all going to be connected. Got to recognize that our differences are the beauty in things. And let me leave you with one last, if I may. My wife and I, my wife sent me to see a, a counselor because we weren't getting on so good because I'm just hard to get on. No, no, no. But so the, the counselor, I, I talked to her about love. And I go, well, it's like the greatest catchword there is. Love, love's everything. All you need is love. You know, I'm like, no, water, good, food, good. Love can come later. You know, nice, but an indulgence almost. You know, you don't, okay, I don't even know what it is. What is it? You know, I know what I feel for my children. I know what I feel for my, for sir. I know what I feel, but putting it into that love thing, it never made sense. And she said to me, love is acceptance. I went, yeah, because I don't accept, the reason my wife and I are fighting in times is because I don't accept her the way she is, you know, vice versa. And I was like, wow, you think about that in terms of the concept of today and the modern world we live in, acceptance of each other. If we don't have acceptance of each other, we are not showing love to each other in my mind. And, and that's, I think it's that keeping in mind that, that to show love is to show acceptance and to be accepting of each other regardless of our differences and to embrace those differences and encourage them and recognise that as individuality that makes the world great might help us out of this. Mate, keep up the good work. Good on you, Barton. Thank you, Lee. I appreciate reconnecting with you, mate, and great work you're doing too. I appreciate you uh, sharing me. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good on you, mate. Okay, Cheers. Mate. All the best. This is Lee Rogers, and you've been listening to the Blank Canvas podcast. Barton was a bucket list guest for me, and he certainly didn't disappoint. He's a humble bloke, and in a way, his contributions to the sport of surfing out of the water have probably eclipsed his achievements in the water. That being said, at the age of 58, he's an amazing athlete and still rips. Last winter, he was surfing 40-foot beasts in Hawaii, and his enthusiasm for surfing is still on par with the 15-year-old Gromit. For more information about Barton, head to bartonlynch.com, and for info about the GoPro BL Blastoff, head to blblastoff.com.au. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share the blank canvas with a friend. Until the next episode, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.